Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with the wise will become wise. I'm Dan Chapa, and Turton Fan and I have been friends for many years, and we've learned a lot from each other, including how to debate opposing views while loving the person. We share a foundation in the essentials of the Christian faith in a love of God in His Word. Here we'll dive deep into the Bible and present both Calvinism and Arminianism and the precise points of disconcurrence. Hopefully the contrast will bring you clarity. Welcome to Disconcurring Theo Amigos. Hi Turton fan, how you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing great. Um, I hope you've uh, hope you've been well. I'm just dandy. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's dive right in. Uh, John Ten, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Me too. So the reason that I selected this passage is verse 26. Uh, verse 26 says, "But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you." My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So, and there's more there. I'm not doing a detailed exegesis right this second, but the reason I brought it up is because there's a. There, it provides an explanation, a reason, a. Uh, it provides an insight into the lack of belief of people who don't believe, and I think that's a critically important part of any discussion because Calvinists and classical Arminians agree that people are saved through faith. And so if we, if we agree on that, then the question is where I think we start to divide from each other is why don't some people believe? And why, why doesn't everyone believe? Or why doesn't everyone who hears the gospel believe? So anyway, that's, that's the general reason why I brought it up. And uh, I'd be interested to hear your kind of overview thoughts as well. Sure. So happy to. So this before we get into the detailed exegesis, I figured I'd give an overview, and I I thought I would start with kind of mapping out some of the Armenian views of the passage. So I came up with this little chart, and I hope it's helpful. If it's not, um, then that's my fault. But um, so we start with the text in. Um, like Turton Vince said, it is, uh, the key point is you do not believe because you're not my sheep and my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And from a broad overview, there's going to be two main paths. One is going to be the Calvinist. The other is the non-Calvinist or Arminian path. And the Calvinist view is going to most likely, uh, I don't want to speak for Turton fan, but it's probably going to um, be looking at unconditional election and irresistible grace as being found in the text. Whereas in the non-Calvinist side, you're going to see that the sheep are generally uh, followers. Not that these things are opposed. That maybe these can overlap in some, some way, shape, or form. But in general, um, the idea that sheep being followers uh, leave to the side the, the notions of unconditional election and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then on the non-Calvinist side, I think there's been some lack of clarity, and it's probably on the Arminian side's fault with in terms of what exactly is going on. What do we think this interpretation is? And there is variety among Arminians in, in terms of how we exactly read this passage. So the two main options are that the folks talked about in John 10, the sheep, are already saved. Or 
it's talking about prevenient grace, which prepares people for salvation. So these are two broad alternatives. There's uh, those that view them as already saved and those that view this as prevenient grace. Now, I myself am a classical Arminian, and I take the prevenient grace view. But let's uh, play out the already saved view just a little bit so you can understand it. Some people say that the sheep are Old Testament saints. They're saints in Israel that have not yet known or heard the name Jesus Christ. And so there's kind of this handover point between um, the Father and the Son. And it's this sort of disp uh, dispensational changing of the guard, so to speak, that, uh, that we find in, in, the in John. And by the way, this is in John 10, but it's actually... This topic comes up in John 6 and John 7 and John 8. John, oh, actually, it's in John 5 and then in John 17. Um, it's actually, it's in John 12. So there's, it's kind of scattershot, scattershot throughout. Not the sheep, but the, the idea. Um, and then some of the some are, um, people take this idea a step further in terms of already saved. And they'll look especially at verse 16 where it talks about there's other sheep that are not of this fold. And they'll say, okay, now, yes, they're already saved, but they actually go as far as to talk about inclusivism, this idea that um, people uh, don't need the full gospel, they don't need the name Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, that's not me, and I'm not going down this already saved path. So to locate my view, I view this as provenient grace, that God prepares people to become believers, and there, there's two different ways of looking at it. Um, one is this, uh, uh, there's kind of this point of no return. So once God in his provenient grace has prepared you to a certain extent, then when you hear the gospel and you've been prepared to that extent, then you'll absolutely will convert and become um, a Christian at that point. Um, the other is you return the way you came. And this, this is not that clear, so I, f I drew a, a second chart. Hopefully this will clarify what I mean by the return the way you came. Okay, so imagine you've got this um, maze that you're following, right? And this is the start point, and I, I drew a little compass. So, you know, you're going north, you're coming from the south, and you're heading north, right? And so you go down the start point, and then so you end up here at this junction. And you can go forward or north but you can't actually go directly south you have to kind of reverse course and return the way you came to go south you can't go south from this point and that's roughly what i mean so the, the this this passage could be the, you know god's provenient grace prepares us to a point where there's no return and we're just ready to become christians and we uh will or it could be that you can um you you can't if a sheep can't not believe right uh, the sheep will believe but someone can stop being a sheep stop being a follower or disposed to follow and then they uh, can return the way they came so i said all that uh to so now with with that said just with the, the that that frame of mind so uh so what are some of the key points obviously it's going to be that the father prepares people for christ and then he gives them over to the son and then the son saves them so that's that's going to be a key contention that um we'll have to look at exegetically um 
Another thing that I'm going to make a, a try to make an argument for is that John 10 is tied to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 has the healing of the blind man at the pool of Siloam, and that this blind man is a pretty good um, illustration of the sheep or this principle that um, Christ is teaching us. Um, and the another point I'm going to make is that the, the sheep don't follow strangers. And it's um, unlikely to be the elect, at least in, a, in the strictest sense, because um, the elect may for years follow false teachers and strangers and that sort of thing until they finally come to faith in Christ. Um, and then the offer of salvation in uh, verse 9, the, uh, the door, is going to be important. And then this is going to be a key point. The uh, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. I take as a rebuke. It's a it's a chide. He um, Christ is is criticizing these Jewish leaders that um, that they are not uh, followers. And I don't think that makes much sense if he's talking about election. Um, it's not their fault that they're not elected. Um, and overall, the point I'm going to try to make is that sheep are just predisposed to follow and sheep you know kind of learn over time and then uh, the last uh, exegetical point I'll try to establish is um, from verse 30 10 37 and 38 now let me switch to the, the text um, if you if you're not doing the works of the father then do not believe me but if you do them but if I do them, I'm sorry let me start over. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. So this is Christ speaking. But if I do them, if Christ is doing the works of his Father, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So based on this uh, passage, I'm going to um, make the distinction between believing Christ's word and the works that the Father is providing as witness to the Son. And that's important to understanding this, uh, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. So that's a that that's my view in a nutshell. All right. So shall I go ahead and, and start now with what I, like a more of an overview exegesis? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. If, if you want, we can take it section by section, however you want to do it. But uh, yeah, um, let's get into the, uh, the meat. Okay. Uh, well, then, there, the chapter, uh, John 10, starts with a verily, verily saying. I know there, there's uh, there's there's other maybe some other translations, uh, but the uh, the statements are these uh, statements that Christ is affirming as true some important doctrines or some important principles. And hold on, let me pause one second and, and re, re, uh, restart this discussion. Sure. And you prefer King James, right? Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, you can use any one. I, what I tend to do on the, on the text, I suppose I should start from that. My, uh, my textual, I don't know if you're going to edit this or just leave it as is. Either way is fine with me. No, let no, me I'll, just restart. I'll, no, I'll, I'll, cut, I'll cut this up. Go ahead. Now let me do it. Um, okay, go ahead. All right, thanks. So I'm going to read from largely from the King James Version, although I tend to modernize some of the words or pronunciations just in order to make it easier for everyone to understand, because I know some people don't. Uh, they're not familiar with Elizabethan English. They haven't read Shakespeare, and so on and so forth. So for their accommodation and for my ease of readability and not trying to change the sense of anything, uh, John 10, uh, let me start at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, the, the chapter divisions, as you know, are not original. But the, in this case, I think the chapter division reflects something true about the text. In particular, the, uh, the previous portion does seem to be divisible from the, the, the portion that begins at John 10, 1. Now, I won't belabor that point. So it says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And the stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they did not understand what things they were which he spake unto them. So this is this parable explains in a in a in a dark way in some important scriptural truths, some important truths of God's uh, of God of, of who He is and how He how He is and, and what He does. And uh, it says. This, uh, at verse 7, we have some of Jesus' own explanation of the parable. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now it's interesting, I, I pause here, it's interesting that he says this, because beforehand, uh, you might have expected that he's going to focus on himself being the shepherd. But now he is the door. Not just the shepherd. Not, there's no porter uh, that's opening, but the uh, but he's also the door. So if he's the door, then it goes stands to reason he's also the porter. Because the porter is the person who who's uh, in charge of the door. I'm the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they may might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Well, we uh, we're not going to be disappointed. He's not just the door. He also says, verse eleven, "I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that's an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming." and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he's an hireling and cares not for the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. So what I want to point out here is none of this is too surprising. He's distinguishing himself as a good shepherd from the, uh, the sheep that are here in this, uh, in this area uh, or in this parable. He's distinguishing himself as the shepherd from the sheep. He's distinguishing himself as the shepherd from uh, the hireling as well, though. So it's not just that the, the metaphor he's creating is not just uh, the shepherd and sheep, but also there's a shepherd hireling distinction that he's, he's making. And he's also talking about this distinction between the shepherd and the thieves. So there's many distinctions he's drawing, many different uh different things that he is not, and also what he is. So, but what's, what I want to highlight here is at verse 13, the hireling flees. The hireling would be you know, someone who's paid to watch the sheep. It's not his sheep. He's not the shepherd. Not, they're not, they don't belong to him. He's just paid to watch them, maybe so the shepherd can sleep, or you know, if it has a big flock so that some of the sheep are watched by somebody else, not the, not the owner of the sheep. Anyway, it says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. And as the father knows me, even so know I the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. So, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Can I, um, may I interject a few things before we um, m move too far in? Sure, go ahead, please, by all means. Okay. So I agreed with most of what I heard. But there's maybe a few points where I disagreed a little bit. Um, so you said basically in verse 7 that it's starting to explain the parable that's put forward in verses um, 1 through 6. And I am not so sure about that. Um, I suspect what 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 uh, it it likely is to me is kind of three separate but related parables that are building off of each other rather than one big one and the reasons why i say that is because i just couldn't reconcile the pieces in terms of well is christ the door or is he the shepherd you know are the the Pharisees, are they robbers or are they hirelings? Um, you know, and there was a couple other elements like that where what I found is that the simplest way is to take them as three different um, smaller parables and then everything mapped out perfectly, right? Because, you know, there was slightly uh, um, less constraint. So, so to me, that, that interpretive approach just um, made sense. But I don't think it's going to, to lead to huge theological differences between us. So it's maybe not the most important point. But that's the way I saw that. Okay. Uh, and, and there's a, I suppose there, there's a way of looking at this as a couple of different parables, and, uh, both of which are sheep related, and f for which the explanation that the theological explanation is largely the same. Because there is a, there are basically in both of, if you look at this as two, there's basically, I, I think you might have said three at one point. I don't know if you, if you're thinking there's a third one. There, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I took it that way. The good, yeah, the, 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 the door. Um, so one through six, the, the, um, the door, and then the good shepherd. Okay, so even if you divide it into three, 
in each case, I think there's uh, in ver in the verse in the first few verses, there's the uh, shepherd of the sheep who calls, and then there's other people who call, but but uh, the sheep don't hear them. Then there's the the door, and everybody uh, uh, there's a thief that's contrasted with the door, and then there's the good shepherd, and that's contrasted with the hireling. And in each case, at least there's there's Jesus presented, and then there's the uh, the sheep presented, and then there's this uh, hireling that's presented, uh, or the thief, or Anyway, there's this uh, the bad guy. <laughs> we could we could broadly say there's a bad guy, there's Jesus, and there's the sheep. Now there's also the porter in one case, and if you don't harmonize these the way that I was suggesting, then the porter is kind of you know not really an explained character. But the point of the porter is the person who guards the door, and the point of the porter being involved there was that the porter opens the door for the shepherd, but not for just anybody. And so the thieves have to go around and go, instead of going by the door, they go another way. So so the, the doorkeeper or the porter, um, if all three of them are combined into one, then Christ can be the doorkeeper and the door and the shepherd. Um, yeah. But if you separate them out, then, you know, it, it's, it's more likely I take the the doorkeeper, and it's not that a vital a point, but I take him as the Holy Spirit, um, who is leading us into faith. Um, you could some people also take him as church leaders or something like that, but but I think in uh, the bigger picture is you're right. The, who exactly the doorkeeper is isn't the main emphasis of the is, and it's not explained anywhere, so it's not a big not a big deal. It's definitely not the central point, and it's definitely not explicitly explained. So I agree with you on both those points. So uh, uh, the one thing I did want to highlight again, going back to verse 13, is this hireling flees, and there's an explanation given. The hiring flees because he's a hireling and doesn't care for the sheep. Uh, so the action that this hireling takes is given an explanation. It doesn't, it doesn't spring from nowhere. There's a reason why when the wolf comes, uh, the, the hireling flees. The reason is because he's a hireling and he doesn't care about the sheep. There's kind of a two, it's a two part explanation, but the point of that statement is uh, Jesus is not like that. Jesus, uh, he's a good shepherd. He knows his sheep and he's known and he lays down his life for the sheep. So while, the, while everybody else may be running away, and the wolf, uh, they may flee. And it would be fun to introduce the hirelings here, not as the thieves and robbers that came before him, but to introduce them as the apostles who, when Jesus is uh, about to be crucified, they all run away. It's fun to do it that way, but that's not what the text specifically says. What it says is that Jesus is the good shepherd. That's the point. And Jesus has different actions than the hireling because he's different from the hireling. And we go on and he says... As the Father knows me, I I know that it says there's an interesting knowledge. Uh, what? Well, yeah, well, go well, ahead. I'm sorry. Let me interject on the, on the hireling just to, um, and I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, but um, so let me let me back up to, you know, some of the Old Testament background, and get a running head start at the hireling, um, so to speak. So, um, this. Parable is 
Well, there's a there's a massive sheep motif throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Christ using sheep multiple times. So, um, but there's there's two passages specifically I wanted to point out. So Numbers twenty seven um, is important. Um, it's it talks about um, that God will appoint a man over the congregation who will go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep with no shepherd. And so all the way back in Numbers, there's a prophecy that God is going to appoint a man over the congregation. And then Ezekiel 34 is vital, I think, for understanding John 10. It it maps it, you know, very, very closely. It's a... Um, warning against false shepherds and these false shepherds are neglecting the flock and the flock suffers and is killed by wild animals because of it um and then but god is going to gather the the flock together he's going to lead it he's going to protect his flock he's going to feed his flock and most importantly he's going to set up one shepherd over the flock um uh and the one shepherd is going to be my servant david and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Um, and this is obviously a messianic um, prophecy. So, um, and then in uh, John 9, um, which, like you said, like you said is, is connected because of the very, verily, verily, um, we have a pretty clear picture as to what's going on. So there's the man that's born blind. He is at the, or um, he's told to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And now the pool of Siloam is close to the sheep gate. So it's very likely that Christ, when he was speaking these parables, was literally close to a bunch of shepherds working with their sheep. So in any, in any case, um, what happens is this, that, that this man is born blind, um, but Jesus heals him. He goes to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees say, you know, how did this happen? Who are you? You know, but they know who he is because he's pretty famous because he's been hanging out there for a long time um, blind. And they can't deny it's a miracle. And at first they're trying to shush it up, you know, as if a miracle didn't happen. And when they can't do that, they say, well, Jesus did that in the power of the devil. And, and then um, the blind person kind of chides them and says, you know, that doesn't make any sense. You know, people can't do this type of these types of miracles unless they're from God. Um, and then I think the point I wanted to bring out is is verse 36. Um, he uh, this is the blind man speaking. Um, he's talking to Jesus after afterwards, after he got thrown out of the synagogue, and, and oh, I should I should say that. So the 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 false um, the Pharisees who were the they, they, I'm going to alter the make they're the they're the hirelings they're the false uh, shepherds they they are the um, the thieves in in John 10, and so the but he, after he they they kicked this guy out of the synagogue for being healed by Jesus essentially. Um, Jesus has a conversation with this blind person, and the blind asks, um, Jesus asked the guy, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? 
And Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This guy is unlike the Pharisees. He is ready to believe in Jesus. He just needs to know the name. right? Whereas the Pharisees, in the face of repeated miracles, repeated claims of Christ's divinity, um, were not ready. So, okay. So I, w I wish you hadn't stopped there. I wish you had kept going one more verse. Okay, go ahead. Oh, oh, the, oh the blindness? Yeah, of course. So that's interesting too. Um, uh, well, actually, it's not specifically the blindness. I'm sorry. It was it was this. Uh, it said it, he said, uh, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, "For judgment, I am come into this world," which is such an interesting contrast from what we discussed last time when it came to John 3 about he's not come to judge the world, right? There's this very interesting tension there that's created by that kind of statement. It is. And the way I resolve that tension is that um, the message, the truth, the light that, that Jesus brings is going to bring judgment with it, not before the, the, the message, but after. In fact, the, it's the people that reject the message that will be judged. Not that that was the intent of bringing the light, the message, that gospel truth, um, but it is it is there because people do reject it. But now, as far as the blindness, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, um, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you are blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see, so your guilt remains. And in essence, what Jesus does is he chides them because they're blind. He rebukes them for not admitting their blindness. Um, this is most like... Um, was he it definitely about? does that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that point, that he, he does chide them for, uh, for saying that they see. Right? So this, if this, you... this reminds me of the Church of Laodicea. Um, for you say, I am rich, I prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be, be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Right? Um, so... What he, I think what he's saying is, you're blind, but you don't even admit that you're blind. And if you did, I would heal you. Yeah, so uh, I do, I think that's interesting as well for another reason, which is, if you remember, one of the functions of parables that Jesus explains other places is to reveal and hide at the same time. So uh, I, I can't recall which, which text right off the top of my head. Um, I think, let me find it real quickly because this is, it's an important verse to, uh, uh, I think it's math, it's either Mark 4, it's Mark, well, there's a couple of places, right? Mark 13, 34 says, Jesus has said all these things, said these things in parables and without a parable, he didn't speak to them. But Mark 4.11 says, uh, Unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand. 
lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. It's very that's very reminiscent, or that's very, um, it brings to my mind that statement, especially when, as you said, that comes immediately before uh, a, a parable. This, uh, and it's specifically called a parable in verse, uh, where is it? In verse six of John 10. Uh, and then, yeah, even you know, if it's actually three parables or one parable, the point is that he's, he speaks in parables and, uh, and these people who he has mentioned as being blind and uh, they are blind, they say they see. I mean, there's a kind of a weird contrast. Like he says, if you weren't blind, you'd be okay. But say so you say you see, now you have trouble, <laughs> which is is kind of a weird contradiction. Like either they're blind or they're not blind. Like uh, it seems like it should be a matter of objective fact, but they but he's actually kind of uh, correcting them for saying that they see when they don't see. They see but they don't see, which is the function of parables. Like you can hear the story about a shepherd, and if all you walk away with is like, isn't it cool that shepherds have this uh, communicative ability with sheep? If that's what you walk away with, that you totally missed the point of the lesson. Uh, and the uh, I, I tend to agree with you that this is all part of that same passage because, or at least it's presented in that way. I don't know how, you said it's like highly likely that he was at this uh, sheep gate. I don't know uh, the timing. Uh, I know that verse 22 says it was the Feast of Dedication and it was winter. Uh, I don't know whether people brought sheep to the sheep gate in wintertime, then it doesn't seem like the most obvious time to bring sheep to the sheep gate, but maybe it is. I, I don't, I just don't know enough about the culture. And also, I don't know if the, if 22, and it was Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, if, if that's introducing a new time period than the previous part, or if it's introducing, or if it's just explaining the current time period. But, uh, I guess to jump back, so if it's okay. Uh, so we we talked about these hirelings. And we, we heard that there's an explanation given for the actions of these hirelings. These are fictional hirelings, right? This is part of a parable or an example, but it's not, these aren't like concrete hirelings. Like there's this particular sheep and this particular sheep has an actual hired under shepherd. Now, Jesus probably has in mind particular people with this parable, and, and presumably the, the people are the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, as the hirelings that he's, that he's mocking here. Uh, but we, uh, but the, the explanation that's given is they, the reason that they don't, the reason that they flee when the wolf comes is because they're hirelings and they don't love the, sh they, they don't love the sheep. But I, it says they don't care for the sheep, meaning not that they don't ever feed the sheep, but that they don't really love them. And then there's this statement, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and a gnomon of mine as the father knows me, even so know I the father. And I, I think this is another illustration and we're probably gonna have a, a uh, disconcurrence about this, but I do think these are uh, these no in 13 and 15 are more examples of no being used in the sense of love. Uh, I don't think he just means that he knows which sheep are his because he can like see it because they have a little brand on their, uh, you know, uh, or a little, you know, because he recognizes how they look. Uh, nor do I think that he's talking only about some kind of that kind of intellectual knowledge when he talks about he's known by his sheep. And I certainly don't think that that's 
what he has in mind in verse 15, where there's this knowledge that the Father has of Jesus and that Jesus has of the Father, I think the point of this is in contrast to the hireling who doesn't care about the sheep. In contrast to the not caring, he doesn't just not care. Or he doesn't just care. He loves. He knows the sheep. The sheep know him. The father knows him. He knows the father. And he's, he's bringing in the intra-Trinitarian love of the father and the son and, uh, and tying that to his care of the sheep. So he says, as the father knows me, even so I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then there's a nice uh, discussion at, at 16. It says, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And this is interesting probably for two points. One point is one that's probably most often made in a, in a sermon context, that, uh, that most often made uh, sense would be the sense in which uh, this is the, the sheep that are not of this fold. What is that a reference to? Are the sheep that are not of this fold uh, other, other people from around Israel? And I think that the answer that would be is that this is a pointing forward to the bringing in of the Gentiles. So there's a, a Jewish fold, and then there's a, another fold, and there's sheep about, of that other fold, which Jesus will also bring in. And so the, uh, the point of that is the, uh, the, you know, that's a beautiful pointing forward towards this incoming of the Gentiles, but it's not the main point. It's just kind of an aside. But also interesting is the statement, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So it's not just, uh, I'm hoping they will, or something like that, but there, he seems to make a, a statement about the future that this is going to happen. Uh, so, uh, so that's part of it. Uh, those are the two parts that I, I think are interesting. Uh, I don't know if you, if you want to jump in at any point here. I, I know that sure. you may not agree with my comment about knowing. No, I actually agree with it. And um, I, I mean, I, I still think that not, um, knowing connotates uh, or denotates knowledge and connotates a relationship um, or connotates love but I but I certainly agree and I, I think that's the case with with sheep themselves is that they have a relationship with their shepherd and they they know their shepherd and it's like that with pets I mean it, I have a dog Max a Boston Terrier and I can take him and just like grab him by the face and like you know um if 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 you were to do that you you know he would attach himself to your nose but with me he'll do that and it's because you know we we have a relationship um with each other um i have a brief video on sheep um that i wanted to play is it is now an okay time to play that it's a perfect time okay so i found this youtube clip and i thought it was pretty cool so it's just a two minute clip Time. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Take it, take it, take it, take it. <laughs> 
Okay, well, you get the point of the video, hopefully, which is, you know, other people, they won't, the sheep won't listen to. They will ignore them. They will just continue eating. Um, but when the shepherd calls, and the shepherd, by the way, calls them um, by name, he, he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out, um, they are gathered to the shepherd's call because they know the shepherd they have that uh relationship to the shepherd so i thought that video was pretty cool and i i thought it um um helped illustrate what christ is is talking about and it's like i said you know there's there's no way to know for sure but if if this blind man did wash at the pool of siloam and if the verily verily is truly is is a follow-up and connective between the previous point and this one um then this could have happened right there at the sheep gate and people could be watching sheep behaving this way and it would have been a perfect object lesson for christ to uh to to make this point so um let's see now responding to the other thing you said um let's see oh verse 16 other sheep I have. So this is important. I have. He doesn't say it in the future tense. I will have. He says in the present tense, I have, that are not of this fold. Now, I agree that there's two. There's at least two folds. You know, there's the nation of Israel, and then the other fold is the Gentiles. And, you know, going, going back to the outline, so when people are talking about inclusivism, which I think is is a wrong, and it's a mistake, but they'll look at verses like this and say, well, there's people that are the fathers ahead of time, um, that there were Gentiles out there that were basically already saved. I think that's over an overstatement, but there is a present tense, I have. There's some relationship that God the Father has with um, uh, people. They are his in some very significant way even prior to them meeting Christ and I do think it is talking about the Gentile inclusion and I think it's talking about that the, through pervenient grace they have been prepared and they're just um, disposed in such a way to follow Christ and good examples of that would be like Cornelius and Lydia and some of the other examples we see in the book of Acts 
So, um, you know, hopefully that helps. I, 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 uh, anyways, I, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at, at that unless, and here's a question for you, Turton Van, um, that I have. In what sense do you take this I have? And it, do you take it in the, in, in the sense of I- eternal election? You're on mute. Yeah. I started by saying something else, and then I said, I think I'm on mute. So, yes, uh, I do think that the statement, uh, other sheep I have, I, I don't recall off offhand the Greek underlying it. So I'm, I guess, I, sh- I suppose I should check what it, what it is very quickly. And I'm pulling it up right this moment. Uh, Echo, present active indicative of echo I have. I think that Jesus is looking at this from an eternal perspective. So I think that the other sheep he has are people like me people who haven't been born yet when he when he said this. Okay, so let me disconcur and push back a little. Um, so here we got to back up and and it comes down to what we just watched in the video. Uh, For they know not the voice of strangers. They flee from strangers, right? And then uh, in the uh, verse eight, um, those that came before were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Right. So the problem I have with the this idea of unconditional election is that many unconditional elect do follow false teachers and false prophets for a, some period of time until, you know, I guess God decides that it's time to to convert them. Um, but it's not categorically true. The, the, the sheep do follow. Uh, if the sheep is of the unconditionally elect, there certainly is a period of time when they're susceptible to and actually do follow um, false teachers. Well, I would say, I suppose, I suppose there's, there's two aspects of response I would offer for that. One aspect of response I'd offer is that the focus that Jesus has there, presumably, the all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't hear them, might be referring more to false Christs that came before, people who claimed to be the Messiah but weren't the Messiah, and the sheep said, eh, no, not, not him. They didn't trust in, in that false Messiah for salvation. I do think that it could be potentially a challenge of the fact that the that sheep were have it like even if we took thieves and robbers there more broadly as as any false teachers there are times when uh people who eventually follow christ previously followed a thief and robber uh the apostle paul might be an example of that you know he seemed to follow the the teachings of the pharisees even when they were anti-christian at first 
uh, and then subsequently uh, he heard the voice of God and followed Christ. So that's a that would be an, that would be a difficulty to overcome. But I would the way I would resolve that difficulty, I guess, is a little bit different from the way you're resolving it. So I, I think the way to resolve that is partly by not by realizing that it, it's a parable; it doesn't capture everything, and this and how exactly people became sheep and is not really fully set out uh, in this text. And the uh, you know, with that in mind, then the you know. I think that there's another resolution than to say than to limit these sheep to people who were alive at the time of Jesus and who also already had X, Y, and Z. I think that there's another way to resolve that difficulty, but I do acknowledge that the difficulty exists, and uh, and it's. I suppose the the solu a solution around the difficulty is just to focus on the the people who are being discussed here without regard to whether that includes future people or not includes future people. Because the only thing that it says, I mean, it does say that these are sheep he has. And if, if, you, know, if you don't look at that from a standpoint of uh, election, whether or not conditional, uh, if you don't look at that from the standpoint of election, then it does seem to be limited to sheep that he has in a present sense already has in a present sense. And if you think that people become sheep through something, uh, then they've already, that something has already occurred such that they're now sheep. Uh, but I think there may be, uh, I think, like I said, I think there may be another solution, but I agree that there, that's a difficulty that needs to be addressed. Uh, okay, we may just concur a little bit there. Um, it, it, to me, it makes it less likely that it's talking about election. Um, and the question, the, you see, the question on, on aid is a good one. It, it, it's, it is a tough expression. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. And it makes it tempting to agree with you with that maybe he's talking about false Christs. And there were false Christs. Um, I think some people specifically maybe point to um, the uh, um, the Essenes, the um, the teacher of righteousness in the uh, um, in the quorum community and things like that. So it could be, um, but it seems less likely. Most of the false Christs that we know of at least came after Jesus, not before. But not presumably there were some before Christ, and he could be talking about that. But the overall tenor of the passage seems to be talking about um, um, the the thieves and robbers being the Pharisees that were trying to kill Jesus, and they had put an order saying anyone that believes in Jesus is going to be thrown out of the synagogue, and then this blind person is healed, and he's thrown out of the synagogue for being healed. So it's much more likely he's talking about them. Um, in the um, but in that sense, it would be you know all that. Um, have claimed to be um, shepherds or that sort of thing, but it, it's a. It, it, you might be right that it, he's talking about false Christ, and and I know you weren't even being super dogmatic on it, and I'm not either. I'm not. I'm not quite sure, um, but I think I think the gen, the general tenor for me is that the thieves thieves and robbers were the the Pharisees who were leading the nation of Israel, but leading them 
wrongly away from the Messiah. But anyways, but you know, we, we might have a, a, a bit of a disconcurrence there, but I don't, I don't, I mean, that's, that's the nature of uh, the nature of the beast. Sometimes when people, when you have heartburn, it's nice to take a little something that it, that can ease your heartburn. It may not solve the underlying uh, ailment, but it could at least relieve the symptoms about this particular item. And here, one of those areas where you might take some solace is verse 18 uh, or verse 17, uh, which in which case Jesus talks about laying down his life in present, you know, in present tense, the same tense we just talked about. And that's as to when he said this, it was clearly a future thing. He hadn't yet laid down his life. He hadn't yet, uh, um, it just hadn't happened yet when he said these things. So he lays down his life. I lay down my life for the sheep. He hadn't done that yet. He was going to, it was a few, you know, he was commenting on the future, but he was using the present tense. So maybe, uh, when he says the thing about having sheep, maybe the it's it's okay to interpret that as in an in even without consideration of predestination per se, but just as a in a kind of a gnomic way, almost the the way he's talking about laying down his uh, life in the same sense that he could also be uh, in that case talking about having sheep that's something that he's going to have in addition to the ones he already has. And that, you know, the, the tense is just not important to it. I mean, I don't know if that helps or not. It doesn't, it, what it doesn't do is, you know, ob prove that this is about unconditional election in any way, but in any event, it's uh, the point, the point that I'm trying to make or that I'm, the point that I'm uh, hoping that you see from this is that the present tense doesn't always mean that the action is currently happening. Uh, that's just the way that, the, you know, I think it should be obvious that he wasn't laying it on his life at that moment. Uh, um, I take the Roman Catholic, you know, wormhole view that uh, the <laughs> sacrifice is eternal and- it Eternally it gets, propagates. It, yeah, and it- uh, Ever-present sacrifice. That, that's why he can be repeatedly sacrificed over and over. No, uh, actually what, what you're saying is pretty reasonable. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so, so here's an interesting point. So we just talked about uh, the knowledge that uh, and how that could imply more than just uh, an intellectual knowledge. And then he says, uh, the other sheep that are not of this fold, they will hear his voice. Then it says at verse 17, therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. And I think, uh, I think that's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting causal chain there. It's like when you think about what he's saying and you take it very woodenly, you're you're it's called it's kind of like the reason Jesus is so loved by the Father is because of the crucifixion. And, and the resurrection, it's the combination. Because I lay down my life so that I can take it again. And it's interesting that he's not just that he uh, lays down his life, but also so that he can take it again. And then he, he reemphasizes that. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. 
I have the power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. That's, uh, that is a clear claim to divinity that is often brushed under, you know, brushed aside. There's no one on earth, not a soul, who can have the power to take their life again after, after having laid down their life. A lot of people, you can sacrifice yourself and people do. You see these um, you know, devoted bodyguards, secret service folks, there are people there who are willing to take a bullet for the president. And you know, one hopes they won't have to, but they're willing to do it. These are people who are willing to lay down their life for uh, their, their country. There, there are, uh, Paul talks about being willing to sacrifice himself you know, for his, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. Moses said something similar, if you remember. So we have these statements by people, and people have uh, been willing to die for others before. I'm trying to think if there's another concrete example I can give, uh, but, uh, but there, there are many cases in human history where people have given their lives to try to take, you know, to try to help their friends. What's never ever happened is any of those people, like after they're dead, have the power to revitalize themselves and come back to life. Nobody's got that type of power. That's something that really is limited only to God. That's, that's a uh, really remarkable point. And again, I know that's not a point of disconcurrence between us, but I just found it a really fascinating part of the text. Uh, at least I assume it's not a point of disconcurrence. Yeah, I know, I, I agree. Um, and. To, to continue the agreement, just expand on it a little bit, um, you know, it's going to be slightly outside of our scope, but we're going to, you know, it goes down to I and the Father are one. And um, in general, the book of John is establishing the divinity of the Son of God and the union with the Son of God in many different ways. But one of the ways it repeatedly establishes that is in this purpose of salvation and that they're working together in salvation, that the Father is preparing people for Christ and then handing them over to Christ, and then Christ saves them perfectly. Um, so that, again, is proof of God's of Christ's divinity, and I think that is, is here in this passage for sure, um, that uh, there's, this, there's this union of, of purpose between the Father and the Son in saving people, and the, the father preparing them, and then the son saving them. I think we do agree on all of that. Uh, the There's a, an interesting line at the very end after he's talked about having the power to, to raise himself up from the dead. He says, this commandment I received of my father. And... I think it's interesting the connection between if you love me, keep my commandments uh, and the that that principle that that's taught, and this comment about that he received a commandment from his father. So on the one hand, it's voluntary. And on the other hand, the father commands this of the son to lay down his life and take it again. And uh and it's interesting, I think you can find in scripture, and I can't recall the citations right now, but I think you can find this verse that says that Jesus has the power to take it again. You can see the father raising Jesus from the dead in another verse. And I think you may also find the spirit specifically being given credit for Christ's resurrection. And 
and it's not, you know, there's no contradiction there. The Holy Trinity uh, raised Jesus from the dead as for many reasons, including as a testimony to the righteousness that he had. Uh, and the, you know, moving on from that, uh, that interesting aside, there's an, in, the, the next point is there's a division among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a devil and is mad. Why are you listening to him? And the others said, those are not the words of him that has a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? So the, there's an interesting division here. And we see in other places that one of the reasons why Jesus is accused of being crazy, having a devil and being mad, these, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a way of saying that he's crazy, he's a lunatic. One of the reasons is because he keeps claiming that people are trying to kill him. He sounds like a paranoid person. Yeah, you guys are, you're going to kill me. I'm going to be die. I'm going to die. I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to lay down my life. No one's going to take it from me. I'm going to lay it down. He's talking about dying and, and get, rising again. People start thinking he's a little bit crazy. And if, I think there's a, I want to say it's in Mark. Uh, it, it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's very close to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Ascribing the works of God to Satan. Um, Mark 3, right? Um, the one I'm thinking of, uh, let's see. Uh, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Uh, let's see if I can find the, the particular passage I had in mind. I'm not sure. Uh, John seven twenty, uh, the one I'm this one I'm thinking about, and in John seven, uh, this is the part where uh, I think he had just healed somebody. Uh, I don't remember if he had just healed anybody, but he went uh, and he taught doctrine on the in the temple, and they said he's never he's not educated. How is it that he knows how knows his letters? since he never was never was educated. And then Jesus says, it's not my doctrine, but him who sent me. If anyone know, uh, if any man does his will, he will know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaks of himself seeks his own glory, but he that seeks the glory of him that sent him, the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you going around to kill me? And then the people said, oh, you have a devil. Uh, or an unclean spirit, or in this, in, in the King James Version, it says the devil. But anyway, you have a devil who goes about to kill you. And, uh, and that, that's that mentality of when, when Jesus starts talking about his death, <laughs> people are like, oh, you're crazy. You're, you're just some paranoid person. <laughs> like, we're not going to kill you. Who's going to kill you? Meanwhile, I mean, John has been kind of hinting at us, and maybe John expects his readers to have already heard the, the synoptic gospels. I'm not sure. But anyway, John is uh, John's explaining this, in, and you kind of see a lot of foreshadowing that Jesus is going to die, and that it's going to be uh, he's going to be killed. But you know, it's kind of an interesting reversal here at eighteen. No one's taking my life from me; I lay it down of myself. But then they they have this back and forth, and the, some people say he's crazy, and then they're like, yeah, but the other people are like, yeah, but can a crazy person heal blind people? Like, well, there maybe there's something else in the picture. <laughs> Well, so before we move on from chapter seven, um, I mean, I think this verse is very 
apropos. If any okay. man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. You could see the parallels between this and chapter 10 pretty clearly. You could, I mean, if, if he had said, if, if any man is a sheep, he will know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself, it, it, it's the, almost the same idea. And if any man will do my will, um, uh, will do his will, right? The sheep are submissive, they're followers, they have a relationship with the shepherd. Um, if any man will do his will, they're prepared. And then th that's the person that will know his doctrine, whether it's of God or whether Jesus is speaking of himself. Um, this is actually scattershot throughout the book of John, um, but this is the general idea of how I take John 10 and the sheep. I think this passage illustrates it really nicely. I, I, let's we'll, we we should have some reason to stay with John 7 and not just because of that but uh, you know his response at 721 I've done one work and you're all marveling uh, and uh, let's see so he mentions the work that he did uh, Uh, as like the immediate thing that follows. And then when we jump to John 10, back, back to John 10, I think he's going to talk a little bit about his work his work again here. So I, I definitely think there are parallels within the text and, and there's those are worth commenting on and worth thinking about. And there is some connection there, you know, between the people who are the sheep and the people who do the will. Uh, I don't think, you know, it's not a stretch. This may be the only shepherd, you know, section of John, but the underlying point of, is not, it's not the only time he's making the underlying point. Well, uh, yeah, so in 10, I look at, at verses 37 and 38. If, any, uh, if I do not do the works of my father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe me not, so if, if, if Christ is performing these miracles in, in and through the power of the father, though they don't believe in Christ and his words, that he's the Messiah, believe the works, believe in the miracles, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And how does this apply? Is So the Jews are saying in verse 24, um, they circled him around him, which is a bit threatening. And then they, how long will you make us doubt? So they're putting, the Jews are blaming Christ for not believing, even though Christ has said it repeatedly and, and performed miracles in their face. And they are kicking people out of the synagogue because miracles are being performed. If they are at the Christ, tell us plainly, Jesus said, I told you, and you did not believe. But there's a previous witness. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So there's two witnesses. The miracles that Christ that, that the Father did in, in Christ uh, through Christ and the words. There's two. There's the two witnesses. And the the and what Christ is saying is, hey, even if you don't, even if you don't believe me, believe the works. And then eventually you will believe me. So he's putting it back on them and saying, 
you don't believe because you're not my sheep. You're not mm. a fo- you're not a follower. You're not predisposed. You're jumping ahead of me on the on the exegesis, which is a which is fine. But okay, I, I should I point out there's a couple of things I want to jump in on there. Please. That, but I don't know if that's I don't want to cut you off if you're like just about to get to the good stuff. No, no, uh, no. That uh, the, go go for it. Okay. So uh, the two verses that we briefly talked about before is these time verses. It was the uh, the feast of the dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews came around him, round about him, like they encircled him, and they said to him. How long do you make us doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, well, I would point out here, it's interesting uh, that you made the connection about doubting uh, and faith. I would point out, in terms of the Greek word that underlines doubt here, I think that what they're really saying is, how much longer do we have to hold our breath? Not so much like, we don't believe you, as... You're, you've got to, you were hold, we've got to, we're holding our breath. It's this words from uh, Psyche. It, it's this, uh, it's a word that has to do with the breath. And I think that it's correctly interpreted here in terms of doubt, but the usual translation would be soul, life, heart, and so forth, right? Uh, so it, it's, it's not. Yes, my understanding, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. In, uh, but my understanding is that the very, very literal way of saying this would be, how long do you hold up our soul? But it's an idiom, meaning how long do you, it's like what we would say in terms of how long are you keeping me in suspense? Or when you know we use it negatively, we say, don't hold your breath about that, right? We have that expression. We'll say like, if someone's saying like, hey, I wonder if Trump's going to find some way, I mean, I shouldn't get this political, but it, right now it's after the... Um, the inauguration and someone might say well what if trump finds a way to somehow get the courts to overthrow the inauguration and put trump back in and someone who who's skeptical about this might say ah, don't hold your breath like like yeah he's, maybe that's possible but you know he's playing 3d uh, chess man <laughs> so i don't want to get too political because i know you know people okay. hate and okay, uh, okay. and everything cool. else i just my reason for mentioning it is just like as an example of something where a person might use that expression in english and that's an opposite kind of expression here they're saying is we have another expression it's like waiting on tenter hooks like you're making us wait like we're holding our breath but how much longer do we have to hold it like just tell us already you know if you're the christ just tell us stop making us uh you know hold our breath or hold our soul or whatever it is but the point is why are you leaving this open? Uh, maybe the point is about holding your breath, like you're in suspense, or suspense also is in the tenter hooks. Again, you're being suspended in that sense, right? There's another kind of a different way of looking at the situation. But the point is underlying, yeah, how long do we have to wonder about this? It's less about uh, you told us something and we doubt you, like we don't believe you. That's not their point. Their point is how, do, how much longer do we have to wait Aren't, are you just going to tell us, just tell us, are you the Christ or not? And we see... Uh, yeah, Rick, go, 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 go ahead, finish your point. But I wanted to comment on that, but go ahead. You can make a quick comment while I look up the other part. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I, th- I think he's not the Messiah that they're looking for, right? And the, let, let, back in chapter 8... He specifically says, not only does he claim to be Messiah, but he says that he's God, and uh, before Abraham was, I am, and they try to throw him off a cliff. I mean, so, you know, how much more clear can he be? 
it, it's it's I don't think um, I don't think I look at it that way. What I think is that they wanted a political leader that was going to come and smash the Romans and free the people, and he's he's trying to save them from their sins, and they're not having it. Um, my guess is that's what's going on, and so you know um, w what they're asking him to present them pre present himself as is not what he is and um but it, it's also very um if he's not going to present himself as the messiah to them in the way that they want it to be if it's not about freedom from the romans then they're going to kill him right and so now it's it's either be the messiah we want you to be or we're going to kill you. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that that's what's going on here, and that, that that they're making this rhetorical point. It's your fault that you're making us doubt, and Jesus has to put the blame back on them. I think I I don't disagree with your point that he is not the Messiah they were expecting or wanted. I tend, I, I definitely agree with that statement. I don't think that's what's being discussed here. I think what's being discussed here is something akin to what ended up being part of his trial described in Mark 26, where the high priest answered to Jesus and said unto him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you're the Christ, the son of God. I think that's the, I think that's the, uh, the, the question that's being posed here. And the reason for saying that is that, you know, the high priest is one of these, you know, temple elites and Jesus is here on the, we're told explicitly here that he's uh, in Solomon's porch, which I understand as being, uh, you know, a place where the public could be, but it's inside the temple. So there could be a big crowd of people here, but they're, uh, but they're also close to these temple elites. And so this, this question that's being provoked I, I view it more as a kind of a question that's supposed to put him on the spot. And uh, I, don't, I don't think it's so much like they're eager to follow him, but they want him to be a warrior king, which some people definitely did, especially the zealots and, and some other, and, and probably the Pharisees to some extent as well, uh, depending on the Pharisee maybe, but I don't think this was that point. Like, uh, you know, sign us up for battle. I think this is more like, say this thing that's going to incriminate you. Keeping in mind that he's just talking about, you know, the fact that he, he's going to lay his life down and that other passage where, you know, previously in, in seven, where they're like, who's trying to kill you? But yet we know this is exactly what they end up bringing up at his trial. And, and that ends up being the point on which they convict him. Right? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a trap. Yeah, it is a trap. Akbar would, would be uh, proud of them. Uh, so we're, we're afraid of them. I don't know. It's a trap. So Jesus answered them, I told you, and you didn't believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep, as I said unto you. And this is the, the nub or the gist or the, the point that I was building up to. And there's more to be discussed after this, of, of course, that this is this, the, really the central point. The, of why I, I 
asked to discuss this passage. And the reason why is not as perhaps as dramatic as one might hope. Like, it might be that I'm hoping to find all sorts of discussions of all the five points of Calvinism here. And I think some, you know, there's some hints at some of them in parts that we've already discussed and also in parts that we're about to discuss in verse 28, the P part of Tulip, I think, uh, uh, 28 and 29, the P of Tulip comes up. But here, what I think is discussed is something that goes after um, a very fundamental aspect of a lot of non-Calvinist views, which is the idea that belief has a cause and an explanation. And I think if you acknowledge that belief has a cause and an explanation, and that it's not uh, simply spontaneous, that it's not just that some people believe, some people don't, but that there's a reason behind it, then I think that you're, you may not end up on Calvinism, but I think you're headed in that direction. Because the idea that the reason you don't believe is that you're not of my sheep whether that's talking about, regardless of what it's talking about, whether it's talking about that it's before regeneration, if it's talking about before conversion, if it's talking about before justification, whatever it's talking about, whether these are talking about Jewish sheep, sheep uh, as the elect, sheep as believers, whatever whatever direction you take this in, the uh, the point is that there's this explanation for disbelief and and that if that explanation about if there is an explanation that implies at a very high level that implies some kind of determinism now i think it's compatible determinism because the fact that these people are being judged so the fact that they're not they don't believe yet they're under condemnation uh, you know that that says something to me about compatibilism so the the fact that they they're in this deterministic system where they don't believe because for a reason, uh, then you know that's. I think that's where I, I'm I'm focused on in this passage. I'm not saying that there that I you know. I know you mentioned in the in the chart, and I think you have the chart up on the screen. I don't know how it will show up on the on the podcast, but on the just for the for anyone who's listening by audio only, there's, you know, the chart shows unconditional election and irresistible grace under the Calvinist branch of the interpretation of John 10, you know, by itself, I don't think this is necessarily about unconditional election per se. And it's, it's maybe in some sense about irresistible grace, but it's also partly about the total depravity side. In other words, the, the reason that you don't believe or you're not my sheep. You're, and with this concept of my sheep comes all, you know, all this theology that's been built up to this point. And there's some more theology that's going to come later. But it has to do with, you know, the sheep are the people that Jesus particularly loves. He knows them. He has a special love for them. They're, they love him. They know him. They love him. There's, there's this connection between Jesus and these sheep. And the reason that they don't believe, and what he means here, by the way, I would say, I know that it's tempting for me, maybe as the Calvinist uh, disputant or 
the, the Calvinist uh, Theo Amigo of the pair, for me to, to point out the focus on believe and just like focus it so much that it, it refers to uh, believing unto salvation and, and really only on that. In context, it's about believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, which is a short summary of the gospel. So I'm not saying that it has to do with every kind of belief about anything, but it does have to do with, uh, with following Christ. And it does have to do with a kind of belief that's associated with salvation. And I think that's what he has in mind here. And I think, I hope, but I could be wrong, that, that when you say, when you talk about you don't believe, I think that you're, you're going to agree with me, at least on that one point <laughs> from all this discussion I've just made, at least on that one point that this is talking about believing that you are, that Jesus is the Christ. Yes. Uh, yeah. So. I'll, I'll jump back to you. There's more that I want to discuss in the in the following context, but I think that's where I wanted to kind of cut off for the verse itself. Yeah, so th that's why it's so important to understand that the sheep are followers in nature. And um, the word sheep itself um, basically means followers. It's a probaton, and um, I think hyperliterally it's the one that walks forward or something like that, but... Um, but idiomatically, it's it's a follower. Sheep is a follower, and um, that language is pretty clear. They, they they have a relationship before they are saved. They have a relationship with the Father, and the Father has um, pre prepared them. And so that's why I take this as a teaching of a prevenient grace, some type of preparation before they are. Uh, come to Christ, they're predisposed to follow Christ. And that's exactly what we see in um, in the blind man who did not see, right? Um, so just, just re reminding uh, these verses, let's see. Uh, here we go. Um, so th this guy was cast out because he'd been healed by Jesus. Um, and Jesus asked him, do you believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? So he's not a believer in this, the full gospel, yet, because he doesn't know that story. But is he ready? Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? He's predisposed. He's a follower, but he doesn't know the full story yet. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and he's the one that talks with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. Right? That's the perfect illustration of what Jesus is teaching us in, in chapter 10. Um, and we can see this scattershot throughout the book of John. So um, I'll give a couple examples, but in chapter 5, it's, it, it said, If you'd believe Moses, you'd have believed in me. Um, it says other things too. Uh, we could get into that. In chapter six, uh, everyone that uh, uh, there will all be taught by God. Everyone that has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Um, in chapter three, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light uh, for fear that his deeds would be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so he can clearly see that his works can be carried out by God. Um, in chapter eight, uh, if you were your father, uh, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came um, 
not of my own accord, but he sent me. And then, uh, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. Uh, 847, who, whoever is God, hears the words of God. Um, and then uh, John 18, 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Um, so this theme is throughout the Gospel of John. And again, John overall is proving the divinity of the Son of God. And one of the ways it does that is this perfect union in purpose and salvation. The Father prepares people for the Son, then he hands them over to the Son, and the Son saves them. This is proof of his divinity. And we see nothing less than this in John 10, and, it, and I, I keep coming back to it, um, verse uh, 38, um, verse 37, if you do, if you if I do not the works of, of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, so if Jesus is performing these works through the power of the Father, though you believe me not, even though you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, believe the works, like his work of healing this blind person, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Um, so this, this idea of, of sheep being followers rather than eternally elect, uh, unconditionally elect from before the foundation of the world, to me makes much more sense and fits the context just way better. Uh, let me respond a little bit. I don't, you know, I certainly agree that that predisposition is the best explanation. In other words, I wouldn't, certainly on a full Calvinist explanation of the text, whether the text says this specifically or not, certainly a Calvinist understanding of, of the situation is that people believe unto salvation after having been prepared for that by God. So that the idea that there's some uh, preparatory grace is Calvinistic as well as uh, in some forms of, of non-Calvinism. So there are some people who would absolutely deny that. Obviously, we, we're, you're not one of those people, right? Yeah. So they, but on the other hand, the, the Calvinist doctrine of regeneration logically, if not temporally, preceding faith is a doctrine that, that has, this, has a similar effect of preparing people to hear the uh, hear God's word and respond, you know, making them sheep, making them followers, so that when they hear the gospel, they follow what it says. My, I don't. So, in other words, I don't think this idea that it's preparatory grace is a contradiction of Calvinism in itself. It's it maybe it's a little bit different. Uh, it's a different way of of expressing it, uh, and it's a way of kind of expressing that there's a recognition that there's preparation without going the full, uh, the full, uh, the, the, all the way and saying that if the people are prepared, then they definitely will believe or something like that. Maybe they just, they're able to believe, uh, but, but falling short of they, they definitely will. And here's an interesting thing. I think on the one hand, I think you have to, you have to take it, in an interesting way, if if all that's meant here 
is, is prevenient grace. If being of my sheep, as uh, that, that he says in verse 26, means having received prevenient grace, my problem with that is that he, the verse 27 seems to make it sound like the people who are this, my sheep, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's not like the, the people who are my sheep now have this opportunity either to follow or not follow. Instead, it, it seems as though the, what it's saying is that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Uh, now, and it goes on, and I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and neither will anyone pluck them out of my hand. So it's it's a lot stronger than just, like, if you have this preparation, you start heading in the right direction, uh, which I don't know if that's, I noticed that you pop, popped the uh, maze graphic up while I was saying this, but it's, you know, this, this comment that's made uh, is, is pretty strong. If you don't believe because you're not of my sheep, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me the whole thing. It's not, you know, so I do have a little bit of an issue with limiting this to prevenient grace. I also have an issue because it, I don't know if you're saying this, but it sounds like you're saying that these Pharisees didn't receive prevenient grace, which, uh, you know, I guess is a is an option uh, for a view, but I didn't realize that your view was that the Pharisees didn't have prevenient grace, if that's what you're saying. So I'd love to hear your clarification about that. Sure. So they received prevenient grace, but they um, rejected it and did not become pliable um, or sheep. And the okay. So just going going back to the the chart. Okay. So you've got the non-Calvinist view, the non-Calvinist views, right? So you've got the already saved, but we talked about that, so we're, we're going to nix that. Let's talk about the prevenient grace side. There's two different ways to answer the argument that you've raised. One is that there actually is a point of no return, that um, the Father prepares people to such an extent that they're ready and they absolutely will convert. The other is that... Um, that they are prepared and ready to to be converted, but they can, if if called by the gospel, can stop being sheep. Now, if they if they can if they remain sheep, then obviously they're going to convert. But if they stop being sheep, then then they would. And that's the uh, return the way you came uh, graphic, which is to go you, the way north is open. The way south is not open, but you can go east and then south, right? And so to 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 reject the Messiah, you have to, the the person would stop be, being a sheep first, and then uh, reject the Messiah. So that that's the general point. I, I, at least I, I don't see any logical reason to to um, to view it that way. Now. The, the point well, hold on. When you say to view it that way, what, do, what are you referring to? To 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 say that either that the, that nobody else is receiving prevenient grace, or that prevenient grace guarantees conversion. Neither one of those things is has to be true. This passage is true, and and maybe both of those those points are not. Um, and and then um, the other the other point 
that I wanted to address that you brought up is this whole thing of, um, uh, oh, um, I, I agree. I could agree with you that the um, that you could hold that the enchantmentation process is re regeneration and irresistible grace. Um, but you couldn't prove that based on this text. If you proved it from some other text and then brought it to this text, okay. But not it's, it's not coming from here and then being uh, pushed out. It's the other way around. So I guess what I would say is I think that it's a useful explanation of this text, an explanation that make that makes the uh, the text quite harmonious. But I do agree that that we would like a more clear explanation of that, and it's hopefully something we will discuss in another time. But I would say that I I don't know if I would say that we're bringing it into this text. I think it's a, I think it's it has the the text raises the question of. Uh, well, let me put it this way. There's, there's, there's a view that this text really rules out, and that's the Pelagian view of if, it's, if you're reading this text as a Pelagian, what you should read is, but because you don't believe, you're not my sheep, as I said unto you, blah, blah, blah. Right? I don't mean to be disrespectful by saying blah, blah, blah. I, should, I probably shouldn't choose that, that terminology, but I, I mean... Uh, if it was a Pelagian uh, text, it should say, because you don't believe, you're not my sheep. Because that's, that is, if you become a sheep by believing, then that should be the order of the text. It shouldn't be that you, believe, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. It should be that you don't, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. Therefore, you don't get all these benefits that are associated with being sheep. And then if it was a full-on Pelagian view, or maybe even a, a, a certain kinds of semi-Pelagian views. I don't know. I'm not going to name names of uh, you know popular uh, anti-Calvinist uh, podcasters who work at uh, Southern Baptist seminaries. It certainly <laughs> would not cross my mind to mention or even hint at such a person. Uh, but you know, someone who's who basically takes the position that you become a sheep by believing. If that's that position, this text is written backwards. In other words, this shouldn't say what it says. It should say exactly the opposite. So now, prevenient grace doesn't uh, doesn't require you to do that. You can say you're you know you become sheepish or sheeply or whatever the term you want to use to turn this into an adjective. But the reason the way you become a sheep is somehow by God's grace, and then you believe because you're you're a sheep, uh, which. I don't, you know, in itself, it's not, it doesn't create an immediate content problem with 26, but it seems to create a problem then is 27, because it seems like the people who are his sheep hear his voice and all these things. And it's like a chain that you hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They never perish. No one will pluck them out of my hand. And, uh, and then there's an explanation and maybe I'm jumping ahead. I don't mean to jump too far ahead if you still need to be focused on the, the original verses, but uh, the the next these next ones that say this the sheep hear my voice I know them they follow me I give them eternal life they'll never perish no one will pluck them out of my hand and the reason why is is explained my father who gave them to me 
is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So uh, we can come to, I mean, there, there's an aspect of this, which is going back to the question of Jesus' divinity when he says that he and his Father are one, meaning one in purpose of salvation of these people. Uh, the Jews understood this in a, uh, by, they understood his claim to divinity, and we can come to that in a second in terms of that. But stepping back for a second, there's this chain that's created. The sheep hear my voice, he knows them, they follow me, and he gives them eternal life. They will never perish. No one's able to pluck them out of my hand. Uh, and, the, and the rationale for why that's the case is not because they're such good sheep or they're so amazingly sheep-like and they just follow whatever I say. The reason given is my father is greater than everything else and no one can pluck them out of his hand. It's like, uh, it's an appeal to God's power, his omnipotence. His uh, Obviously it's not explicitly omnipotent here, but it's greater than all. I mean, you don't get any more powerful than God and God has decided that these people are not going to perish. So they're not. And no one's able to, to contradict that. Now that does, in my mind at least, that rules out a rejection of P, the rejection of perseverance of the saints. Because if someone's able to, uh, if someone doesn't have, if they just have life and not eternal life, then they don't have eternal life. And if they have something that they call eternal life, but it's not really eternal, I mean, that's a little bit like these gods in Olympus that can be killed. Like they're immortal gods who can be killed. It's like, you know, it's just a little bit of a confused thought. But just in case the eternal life is not clear enough and they shall never perish, <laughs> neither can anyone pluck them out of my hand. And the idea and the picture there is that these are uh, people inside Jesus' hand and no one's able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So you've got the father and the son uh, both holding on and no one is greater than the father to be able to pull them out. And the idea, I know that people will, you know, I've heard people say, ah, but you, you know, no one can take you out of God's hand, but you can jump. Like, I don't know, it has to, be, you have to think about that idea in terms of the metaphor and the, that Jesus is using here of being inside God's hand and no one can remove you because no one's stronger than God. And then you're like, except for me, like eh, nobody else is stronger than God, but I, I'm, I definitely am like nobody, like everybody else, no one can stop me from being safe, but me. Absolutely. Yes. I can pluck myself out of God's hand. No problem. Cause that's how, you know, that's how things are. I mean, that really doesn't fit at all with, with the metaphor he's going for here. When you talk, if it was just sheep, you could be like, you could show, you could probably find a video where some sheep, I don't even know, I didn't look closely in the video you showed, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's like one little straggler sheep out there in that video who's like still eating food after the shepherd's been calling them for a while. And he's just like, eh, whatever. I mean, I don't know. I don't feel like it, right? There's like the exception. With sheep, there's an exception to the rule, right? But Jesus switches from, uh, being a sheep to being in somebody's hand and and it's in my hand and it's in the father's hand so it's you know it doesn't work with sheep you can't like put a sheep in your hand uh it just doesn't work that's not how sheep are but anyway i'm sorry go ahead no no actually um 
maybe we can uh, I probably need to wrap this up but maybe we can end on a point of concurrence rather than this concurrence because um, I am an Arminian and it's unusual for me to be an Arminian that holds to uh, perseverance of the saints or something like it um, and it, it's not a what I hold to is not a one for one map to Calvinism but there, there's some similarities but this is one of the reasons why um, and they shall never perish Right the, in the Greek, it's "uk may Apollyon uh, destroyed." They will never perish. The um, uh, Apollyonti is subjunctive. Now, subjunctive sometimes is in the sense of an uncertainty, right? That it might happen, it might not happen. You know that that's a subjunctive. But with the negative, the subjunctive becomes a denial of the subjunctive in the sense of it's not just not going to happen that they'll perish the possibility that they won't perish is denied so he's denied not only that it won't happen but that it's possible and then he's got the double negative uk may right it's so jesus is being very emphatic this is the strongest language jesus can use to say this it's as if he's saying they shall never ever ever perish that's the point he's making so that's what i believe is our future and it's like uh like in psalms 23 which is another shepherd text um but uh he he's going to lead us beside still waters but what does psalm 23 end with surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, okay, so did you have any uh, final points? Um, I uh, and I, I mean, I appreciate what what you said. I mean, um, um, I don't. I, I at this point, I might be just repeating if I um, were to push back further. So, I I think I, I think for my part, I've uh, I've said my piece. Um, I I liked the point that you raised about the the negation of the subjunctive. I'm trying to think. I was trying to think whether I could substantiate that with uh, with actual grammatical examples. Uh, I and I, I just I'm not hundred percent sure what what would uh, fit. Uh, but I I, I do think I, I just I'm not sure. I just not sure about it. I, I, it fascinates me. These some of these grammatical arguments absolutely fascinate me, because the one that really uh, I don't know tweaks my nose is the uh, the sharp rule of about you know if three if you if you combine uh, titles of a person uh, and you include the article in a particular place then they're all talking about the same person versus they you know different persons i thought there you know, there's there's uh 
there's rules like that, which Greek definitely has. Uh, and then there are, there's other times where it's like, you know, I don't know, there's some, some of the rules are, are quite interesting to think about. And I'm just trying to think if we, if we take it as having such a strong sense, simply because of the fact that it's a negation of a subjunctive, uh, uh, um, may I offer, let me, re, let me read this from Dan Wallace, uh, Greek grammar beyond the basics, emphatic okay. negation, subjunctive, De a definition, emphatic negation is indicated by the ukme, the double negative, right? Mm -hmm. Plus the error of subjunctive, which is exactly what they see, or less frequently, uh, ukme plus the future indicative. This is the strongest way to negate something in Greek. One might think that the negative with the subjunctive could not be as strong uh, as a negative with the indicative. However, while uk and the indicative denies the certainty, uk may plus the subjunctive denies the potentiality. The negation is not weaker, rather. The affirmation that is being negated is uh, less firm with the subjunctive. Uk may rules out the idea that, uh, that as being a possibility. Ukme is the most decisive way of negating something in the future. Emphatic negation is found primarily as reported in the sayings of Jesus, both in the Gospels and Apocalypse, secondarily in the quotations from the LXX, uh, the Septuagint. Outside these sources, it only rarely occurs. As well as soteriologically themed, it is frequently found in such statements, especially in John. What is negated is the possibility of the loss of salvation. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to quote... Um, John ten twenty eight. The, the my my quick search only turned up one one example uh, that I like I found quickly, and that was uh, Luke eight ten, which says, "Unto you is given to know the mysteries of God of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand." Uh, is that that has that same denial of a subjunctive? I think. Uh, I just, I do, I do wonder. I'm not saying that Wallace is wrong. Wallace knows more about Greek than I do. I just, I just curious how strong he's making it as a rule versus how much he's saying, you know, this is just a cool thing you can do in Greek. And I don't, I didn't see there when he was listing, you know, what he thought were the, you know, examples. If he listed uh, Luke eight ten among the uh, among the emphatic negations. I definitely, you know, in the original context, there's there's a huge, you know, it is emphatic in some sense, I guess, but it's it's interesting that he says that. I don't know. Thank you for raising that point and for uh, and for raising his comments about it. And I, I certainly am not disagreeing or just concurring about that. I'm just kind of curious to to dig into it further and see what else. I, I'm mostly interested to see how much it's a universal rule versus the, you know, the same way you can use the dative in several different ways, or you can use, uh, you know, vocative is always used in one way. Nominative is usually used in one way. Dative, genitive, some of these have more interesting uses in Greek, it seems. Uh, but there's, uh, you know, these kinds of I don't know. These kernels of, of information are, are precious. So thank you for sharing. Oh, uh, yeah, my pleasure. And the, the whole conversation has been my pleasure. Um, so I just, wa just wanted to 
offer one more time. It, um, were there any other points on John 10 or? Okay, I, I got to go. Okay, well, let's call it uh, a wrap. Okay. Thank you. My pleasure. Nice talking with you.